uh, is our guest today, our guest preacher. And uh, Stan, we're so glad to have you with us. You're, you're the senior pastor at and uh, can you just tell us a little bit, what's, uh, what's the church like? Um, is this mic on? Yes. Yes. yes, no. I'm hearing a yes and a no. It says Jeremy on it, but it Oops. must know that I'm not Jeremy. So. <laughs> can you hear me through it now? Yes, no. I like that. Can you hear me now? There we go. Why do I feel like I'm in an advertisement or something? Was Verizon? No, it would be someone else. Um, Plymouth United Methodist is a congregation um, that is 100 and 130 years old, and um, back in the 70s it moved to West Plymouth. We, our average worship is about 250. Um, here in New England, um, Methodist churches typically are more liberal Methodist churches, um, but God has been really faithful to the Plymouth United Methodist Church, and it's actually had a series of Gordon Conwell pastors going back to the 1970s, and so it has a very strong um, evangelical and renewal side within the um, New England Conference of the Methodist Church. And we have two worship services. Our first service is a traditional service. Our second one is a contemporary service. That's, that's so exciting, Stan. Hey, it sounds like you talk funny just like me. I do. I grew up in, not far from where you did, I grew up in North Dakota. And um, I grew up in little towns where my dad actually was also a Methodist pastor. So... And uh, tell us about your family. I have a wife who we, um, Regina and I, have been married for 25 years, and we have two sons. Our oldest son is David, who is a freshman in college in Ohio at Otterbein College, and we have a fifth grade son who actually next year will be going to South Shore Christian um, School here in Weymouth. Stan, we're so glad that you've come. We're excited about the, the partnership with fellow evangelicals. It's part of what we believe in as a church, is, is teaming up with people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess his name. So welcome to, in God's church, welcome to God's people, and, and feel free, share the word of the Lord with us. Now again, I believe, is it, this mic is not working, am I? Oh good, I get to do a handheld. That's okay, we'll be fine with this. No, actually I'm fine. I have no problem holding the mic. Um, what noise am I hearing? I think this is from this cord. You'll always, you will always remember me as the guy who came and preached when the mic didn't work. We're going to get you a... Uh, Wait a second. A I am now on on the wireless microphone. We're fine. Okay, I'll take this away. Uh, Good children to go. can be released to Children's Church. There is no children's choir today, however. I want to... As the kids are going out, I want to tell you a story about... A, this had to have happened in a Methodist church. I don't think it happened in a Baptist church. A little girl one day invited a friend to church. Now, the little girl's father was the pastor of the church, and the friend that she invited had never been to church before. And so as they were sitting there in the congregation, the friend kept asking her, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean? The first thing is she walked in and she said, what does it mean, that big thing that's sitting there in the front of the church? And the little girl invited her and said, oh, that's our pulpit. That's where my daddy stands to deliver his morning message. 
little bit later in the service, these men were walking through the sanctuary and were, were passing these plates. And the little girl said, what does it mean that those people are handing things up and down the aisle? And the little girl said to her friend, oh, that means it's time to collect our offering. That's how we um, support our church and give to God according to how he blessed us. And then as her dad got up to preach, he took off his watch and he set it on the pulpit. And the little girl said, what does that mean when your daddy puts his watch on the pulpit? The little girl said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> as I said, that had to have been in a Methodist church, not, certainly not in a Baptist church. I'd like to um, have you turn, if you would, with me to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 19. I want to give you a quick background of this and also want you to know that I'm actually going to be reading from the New American Standard Version, not New International. And what we find is a story of a man named Ananias who is going to be called by God to go to Saul, who in the previous chapters has been persecuting the church. Saul was a zealous Jewish man who was brought up in his traditions But as faith started to come alive in Jerusalem and people started to come to know Christ, Saul was on the wrong side of the street, we could say, because Saul was out there persecuting the church as opposed to joining in with the Christians. And so as we read in Acts 7 and 8, we find a story of the first time persecution, a real persecution happened in the church when Stephen was stoned to death and Saul was one of the ones that the Scripture tells us was standing there egging on the crowd as Stephen is being stoned. And then later in Acts chapter 8, we're told how Saul was one of the chief people who persecuted the early Christians. But then in Acts chapter 9, we find this amazing thing that would have come right before our passage on how Saul was converted by God on the road to Damascus. And certainly we probably know that story well. We think of how it identifies and touches our own lives as we come to faith in Christ. But I want you to consider as we start looking at the Scripture this morning what it must have been like for those who had heard about Saul, had heard how he was persecuting the church, and now are asked to trust that he's actually one of them. What fear... It must have given people to have to reach out to this guy Saul and accept him as part of the Christian faith when after all they knew that he not only had been antagonistic towards Christians but he had also been involved with the killing of Christians turning them over to authorities for persecution in the early church. And it's out of that background that we come to verse 10 in Acts chapter 9 And we read about Ananias, the first person who's asked to go to Saul and to step out in faith and to accept him as part of the church. And I read this text and ask us as we hear this and listen to our message this morning, not only to think of Ananias, but to think in our own lives of the things that cause us fear. Because we all have them. Fear is huge in our lives far too often. And how do we respond in faith to the things that cause us fear? Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, 
Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and he has seen a vision that a man named Ananias will come to him and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your servants at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by the way which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and he was baptized. And he took food and he was strengthened. That's quite a story. It's amazing. And as I read it, I really do identify with the fear that must have gripped Ananias. And so I'd like to begin by asking you a question. This is your participation portion. When you think of obedience, what comes to your mind? Dogs. Absolutely. What else? Thoughts on obedience. We must be talkative Baptists here this morning. We have a Methodist in the pulpit. What else comes to mind? Obedience. Any other ideas? Do what we're told to do. Maybe parents, parents and children. Well, when I think of obedience, the first thing I think of, and maybe it's from my own family background where my brother is a policeman, I think of cops. I think of driving down the highway and staying obedient because I'm looking in the mirror and I don't want to get a traffic ticket. As I was preparing this message, I thought of how I really believe God wants us to move from obedience, which can be fear-based, into response, which is relational. You see, our oldest son, David, is a freshman in college, and as a young child, we certainly did all the things that parents do to help him learn to be obedient, asking him to take out the trash, do certainly all the typical things that moms and dads do. But when he went away to college this fall, something struck my wife and myself that we hadn't really thought about until we were separated by a distance. We didn't want a son who was in college who's obedient. We wanted a son who responded. And every day we now have a little ritual in our house where we get up and we turn on the computer. The first one who can turn it on tries to see if our son has sent us an email. It's nothing about obedience. It's about response. Responding to a letter that we've sent to him, a note that we've sent to him. And it makes us feel good. It keeps us connected when we know that he thought enough of us just to send a little email. Usually it goes something like this. I'm alive, having a good day, thank you, talk to you tomorrow. (laughs) I believe that God is in that kind of relationship with us. That's what he desires. He doesn't just desire us to be obedient as if he's a big traffic cop waiting to arrest us. God's desire in your life and my life is for us to learn to be in relationship. I like to think that God wants to get those emails from us every single day. He wants us to talk to Him, to share with Him our hurts, our pains, our sorrows, and our struggles. And God wants us, when we are facing those difficult challenges in our life, in our communication, 
not to be gripped by fear, but because of our responding to God out of love to be able to learn to do the right thing. And that's what this text is about. It really begins when we understand that God invites us to do things. Sounds simple, but that is an amazing truth. You came here to worship this morning. I ask you, if you hear nothing else, to think about this. The God who created this universe, the God who loved you so much that He sent His Son to be your Savior, invites you to do things. Imagine if the President of the United States called you up and said, Hey, I'd like you to do such and such, how quickly you'd respond. But it's a God, the creator of the universe, who invites us to be active in our faith. Verses 10 and 12, we're told out of our text, there was a disciple in Damascus, his name was Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Verse 11, The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus. His name is Saul and he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias who will come to him and lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. God was direct with Ananias, wasn't he? There was no messing around. There was no confusion in his mind as to what God wanted him to do. God wanted him to go to this guy Saul and to reach out with him in love, to share the good news that he had in his own heart. You see, often the problem isn't that we don't know what's God's will for us. Often the problem is we don't do it. God invites us every single day of our life to do things. I challenge you, think in your own life of the things that God's calling on your heart right now today. I don't need to add to your list. Every single one of us, as we trust in Christ and live for Him every single day, start discovering that God has things for us to do. Too often, it's our misunderstandings of God. Maybe we still have some sense that God is just this angry, punishing God and really isn't in relationship with us. Or perhaps we see God as almost a do-nothing God, not really involved in our daily affairs. But the Bible teaches a totally different understanding of God, that God is love. That's about relationship. The Trinity exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relating and loving each other. And now God comes and loves us and wants to be so intimately involved in our lives that as He directs us and guides us and starts to help us say, here's something I need to do to step out in faith, that we in response understand it's a privilege to live for God. It's a privilege to be like Ananias and to have a clear understanding of what God wants us to do in our lives. So it really begins our responding to God, especially in the midst of our fear, to realize that God invites us to do things, to be active, to get busy about our faith and to share the love with others. But the problem is, and it's the second thing I think we hear really clearly from this text, is that fear makes responding to God difficult. Fear is often like those old tapes, or I like to often compare it to that little mouse who's on the wheel. Runs really fast and never goes anywhere. That's how our fears happen in our lives. All of a sudden, those old tapes or that little mouse starts going around in our head, and we start thinking, oh, but if I do this, this is going to happen. And last time I tried it, this happened. And pretty soon, we're more gripped with fear than we are with faith, and our fear keeps us from stepping out and doing what we know God wants us to do. 
That's what happened to Ananias. Verses 13 and 14. Ananias answered, Lord, excuse me, God. I've heard from many about this man. I like to think he's almost saying, God, maybe you have been not paying attention here, but I know some things about this guy you're asking me to go talk to. How much harm he did, your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias had reason to be afraid. He was literally asked to go to the Osama bin Laden of the first century and say, I'm a Christian. Fear can be real in our lives. There's reasons why that mouse starts going in our head. Twenty-five years ago, my wife and I were following what I always like to say is a promise that I made to my mother. I promised her I wouldn't get married when I was in college. So we graduated from college on May 8th and were married on May 9th. And my wife and I really believed that God was calling us into ministry. And specifically because of some things that had happened in my background where my father was originally actually from Quincy and had moved to the Dakotas where I was born, really felt that God was calling me back here to New England to be a pastor and to be a pastor within the Methodist Church, which is a tradition that I grew up in. And so knowing that that's where God was calling us, In hearing all of the stories of how difficult ministry can be for an evangelical in the Methodist Church in New England, I started to step out in faith and I applied to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, but hedging my bet, I also applied to Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. And then we started getting fearful. As I was accepted at both schools, we started to decide, you know, maybe that New England thing really isn't what God wants us. And we had ourselves totally convinced that we were going to go to Kentucky. In fact, when it came time for our wedding, we had told every person that we knew that for our honeymoon we were heading to Kentucky and it was there that we were going to get housing and I was going to start at seminary in Asbury in the fall. It was a safe place to go. My pastor was a graduate of that seminary. My wife was from Ohio. If you check on a map, Kentucky borders Ohio. It was the easy decision to do. And somehow that weekend as we graduated, and we're married, God really spoke to both my wife and myself and said, listen, I've called you to go to New England. We told no one. We got in our car, and instead of going southwest, we headed northeast on our honeymoon. And we came out here to Gordon-Conwell. Fear makes responding to God difficult. Ananias had reason to be afraid. We often can come up with all the reasons why we should be afraid. But I like to think and imagine how different life would have been for my wife, myself, our family, had we not responded to what we really believe God was calling us to do in the midst of fear. I can stand here, I'm not going to do it, but I can stand here and give you a whole list of how evangelical pastors who go to a Bible college in Gordon-Conwell Seminary don't end up in the Methodist Church in New England. But it was a call from God. And it was a request in our lives to step out on faith. And I believe it has set the tone in our family for how we believe God wants us to live our lives. Fear makes responding to God difficult, but not impossible. 
Because if we are in a relationship, we start discovering that the God Almighty, the Creator of the universe, is with us and goes before us. And that's why the third thing I hope we learn from our text is we cannot escape our fears, but we must face them. I can't tell you what's happening in your life that causes you fear today. Maybe nothing. I hope that's where you are. But there may be things. There may be something at work or something in your family or maybe a neighbor that God's laying on your heart that you need to share the gospel with and you have all the reasons why not to do it. Well, we can't escape those fears. But we must face them. And when we face them with God's help, we start discovering that God really does go before us. Verses 15 and 16, we read, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I love the way the New International translates this. And if you have an NIV Bible and you have it open right now, I invite you to look at verse 15. It says, The Lord said to Ananias, Go! Exclamation point. I have often thought I'd like t-shirts. You know how Nike has their Just Do It t-shirts? I'd like us Christians to have a t-shirt that says, Go! Exclamation point. You see, God calls us to face our fears. God calls you in your life to step out on faith and to do the things that God's calling you to do, no matter if those fears are there, no matter how strong they may be. A few years ago, I was serving a church that was deeply conflicted. I had the privilege, I guess you could call it, of being the pastor who was called to follow two pastors who had had affairs. Former two pastors before me had left the ministry because they'd had affairs. And I was the pastor who followed them. It was a difficult, difficult time in my life. It was a difficult church to serve. God certainly was doing great things. And finally, I realized that there were some problems that I just couldn't deal with myself. In the Methodist church, we have district superintendents who are over us. So I went to my district superintendent and expected that a meeting would be called between the DS and members of my church and that somehow things could be worked out. But instead, my district superintendent looked at me and said, it sounds, Stan, like you have a little bit of fear in facing what you need to do in your church. Well, yes, I do, but you know, I was hoping maybe you could give me some help here. My DS said, well, okay, I'm going to give you some help. I'd like to send you to the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center for mediation skills training. I said, what? I thought you were going to come in and help us fix things. Oh, no, Stan, I want you to go and fix things. That was an awesome experience I had. Because I realized as I sat in that training that conflict is inevitable. Come on, folks. We can call ourselves Christians. We can fight as well as anyone else. We can nitpick. We can criticize. We can do the same as the world does. And those same spirits start getting in our congregations. But as godly leaders, as Christians, we are called even in our churches to face the conflicts, to face the things that cause us to be afraid to deal with them in a loving and a caring manner. I am so thankful that I had a district superintendent who cared enough for me to say, Stan, you need to face your fears. 
The image during that time as I was taking that training was of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was, he was filled with fear, pain, sorrow. The Bible tells us that as he prayed, drops of blood were mixed with his sweat. I've never had to face anything that trying. Maybe Ananias did. I can't imagine being Ananias. You see, when God calls us to face our fears, I'm sorry, but I've yet to meet a Christian who's really invited to go and talk to someone who they think is going to kill them. God asks, however, of us to go, to step out on faith, to look at where the Lord is leading us and to set aside for those moments our fear and to be in real relationship with God and to trust and to realize that as we face our fears that God goes before us and He does amazing things. Which brings us to the last thing that's so awesome in this text and it's all throughout the Scriptures that miracles happen when we face our fears. When you and I are willing to step out on faith and trust God in His Word as opposed to the thoughts that we have, the background that we have, the naysayers in our lives who want to tear us down or keep us from doing our best, when we truly face our fears, miracles happen. And that's what happened in Acts. Ananias knocks on the door and thinks that he's going to get arrested. And what the Bible tells us in verses 17 and 18 as Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you by the road by which you were coming has sent me here that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized. Wow, that's a Baptist day for you. He begins the day afraid of going to this guy, and he ends out immersing him by sunset. If that doesn't excite us, nothing can. Miracles happen when we trust Christ and face our fears. We never will know the blessings that God wants to do in our lives until we step out on faith. And that's how we're called to live our lives every single day. Lord, what am I afraid of today? What is it that you want me to do? I want to tell you the last part of the story of my coming here to New England. The day that my wife and I set out for the Northeast when everybody thought we were going to the Southwest, my brother called me aside and said, Stan, I'd like to give you a gift. He's a doctor, so you never say no to him. And he handed me $400 bills. And I said, Ralph, thank you. What are they for? He said, oh, you never know when you might need them. So I took the $400 bills and I neatly folded them in quarters and stuck them in a little pocket in my billfold, thinking we didn't need them for our honeymoon, but hey, you just never know. Got out here to Gordon Conwell, and one of the things that caused us fear was the housing costs in New England. Coming from North Dakota, I'm sorry. It's crazy how much people pay to live in New England. We showed up at the seminary and there was a big bulletin board and my wife and I were standing there and we were looking at it and on the bulletin board were all of these different apartments for rent and being the sweet loving wife that she was, she'd say, honey, maybe we can afford this one. And I said, I don't think so. $600 a month, not in our budget. 
well, maybe we could afford this one. I said, don't think so. I said, you know, this has been great. We came to New England. We tried to do what we thought God wanted us to do. It looks like it's going to be too costly. We're still going to end up at Asbury Seminary. It's fine. You know, maybe it's really not what God wants us to do. Right around the corner from that bulletin board was student services. Sitting inside student services was a woman named Louise Carey. She walked out and turned to us and said, Are the two of you on your honeymoon? I said, Yeah, we are. She said, Well, I've been sitting here at my desk listening to the two of you talk. She said, You might not believe it, but I have 90 applicants for two apartments here on campus. And she said, It's really tough for me to decide who's going to get those apartments. She said, But they're way cheaper than any other housing. She said, I'd like to offer you one of those two apartments. He said, sure, how much is it? He said, well, it's $150 a month for rent plus a $50 for heat and utilities. $200 a month plus a $200 security deposit. If you have $400, the apartment's yours. <laughs> I pulled out the bills, handed them to her, and said, wow, God wants us here. Miracles happen when we step out on faith. Miracles happen when we trust in God. Now, I also want to say a caveat. There are times in our life when the only miracle is that we learn to face our fears. God doesn't always rescue and deliver us. We can tell the stories like our experience of coming out here. But we need to also understand that God calls us to face our fears, to step out on faith, to be like Ananias, even when things don't go the way we want them to go. Because God has the big picture, and we don't. In the Old Testament, it's the last thing I'd like to share. It's a wonderful story that we certainly all knew from growing up in Sunday school. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember these three guys and King Nebuchadnezzar has made a decision that he's got this big golden statue and he's going to send it around and trumpets and music is going to play and people are going to go before it and everybody's going to bow down to the statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, I don't think so. We bow down to the God who created this universe and no one else. And so the news gets back to King Nebuchadnezzar and he's set out a decree. And he said, anybody who doesn't bow to this statue is going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, statue goes around. Everybody bows down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand there. I will not do it. King Nebuchadnezzar comes to them and says, excuse me, I don't think you understand. I'm the king and you aren't. I say bow, you bow. I say you don't bow, you burn. Well, Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing their fears say words that I hope we all highlight in our Bibles. They say, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But then they say these words, But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Amen? 
God doesn't say, Stan, every time you set out on faith that everything's going to go the way you want. He asks us to be in relationship, to understand that even if things don't go the way we want them to go, that facing our fears and being open to that relationship with God and living our lives the way the Lord Almighty wants us to live is benefiting enough. For we're promised an eternity in heaven. We're promised an eternity sitting around the throne praising the one who gave his life for us. Fears are real and they're powerful and they can keep us from taking the steps of faith that we know that God wants us to do. May we learn to be like Ananias. May we learn to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Stepping out on faith, living in such a relationship with God that even when we're not sure what the outcome's going to be, that we realize that with God's call on our life and the Holy Spirit living in our hearts and God going before us, that we can face whatever we're called to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for it rings so true in our lives as we face the things that cause us to be afraid. We thank you for Ananias, for the call on his life and for his response. Teach us, Heavenly Father, to live in perfect relationship with you, accepting those times when we fail, receiving the forgiveness that you offer to us, but learning to respond to you out of love no matter what comes our way. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you, Stan, for sharing from God's Word this morning. I appreciate your being here. Let's stand together. We want to respond to the Lord as He's challenged us in His Word this morning. We want to declare together our desire to...